I never know what I'm going to hear when I walk up here. Elizabeth, that was a great story. Thanks for reminding us what the year of good news is about. It's not about Sunday morning worship. It's not about programs. It's about every person beginning to ask God, how can I be used to speak into the lives of people who are alive but dead, who are walking around, and yet there are stuff that's just dead inside of them, and they long to know the real life that God intends for them. So thank you for that. That's what this year of good news is all about. As a matter of fact, that's what we ought to be all about every year. All the time. I heard recently about a pastor who was calling on a house of one of his parishioners. And when he arrived, he was sure that he could hear someone scurrying around inside. But despite his loud knocking on the door, no one came to greet him. And so finally he pulled a, a business card out of his wallet and wrote on the, beha- on the, on the back of it, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he slid the card under the door and he left. Two days later, he got a note from the woman who lives in the house. And all it said was, Genesis 3.10. I heard you and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Last week we studied the first time that those words were ever spoken. Adam and Eve had already eaten of the forbidden fruit that God told them not to eat. And we see that just as God had promised, death immediately begins to enter into the human experience. As they had been told, things began to die. First of all, we saw that their relationship with their Creator began to die. They hid from God, if you can imagine that. Up until now, they walked with Him every day in the garden. But now they hide from Him. Imagine that. But there's still more things to die, more death to go around, and more for us to be aware of if we're going to bring hope and help and life to our friends. So let's continue with our study in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me. (laughs) You already get it, don't you? She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Speak to us now through your word, God. We laugh, but it is tragic to see 
human beings who are hiding from God and hiding from each other, hiding from themselves. So, God, give us freedom today in Christ's name. Amen. The first sign of the death that God had promised would have come with the eating of the forbidden fruit was alienation. First of all, alienation from God. The brokenness of that relationship. Death crept into that relationship. Then listen to verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. We discover here the beginning of the death of another relationship. The relationship with ourselves. Relationship with God is breached. Now the relationship with ourselves. Listen to Adam's response when God comes calling for him in the garden. Listen to what he says. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. What is the word that's repeated four times in that short verse? I. Four times the personal pronoun. I heard you. I was afraid. I was naked, so I hid. Part of the fallout of sin is self-absorption. Part of the death that comes with sin is self-absorption. We become more and more aware, more and more focused on ourselves. And the really pathetic part of it is this. We don't like what we see. We don't like what we find. Think back. God created Adam out of the dust formed him with his hands, breathed his spirit, his life into him. He received a tenderness and a personal touch that no other creature received. God showed the same care with Eve when he created her. Here is something that our culture, and especially our earth-first animal rights culture, can never accept. Human beings are the zenith of God's creation. Human beings are the high point of God's creation. He created them last. He created them uniquely. He created them in His own image. He didn't do that with any other part of creation. He animated them with His own spirit. He didn't do that with the rhinos and with the chimps. If you read this story carefully, pretty quickly, you realize that God created the whole of the universe as a stage upon which to place His most prized and precious creation, humanity. You will not read that perspective in the newspaper. God created humanity to have a, a loving and transparent relationship with Him. We, the, we are the only creatures intended for a two-way relationship with God. The only ones. We are created with a longing to know God and to be known by God. We have a longing to hear from God and to talk back to God. He created us with a Godward focus. Only us. Only we humans. He created us with eyes to look at God. Our family raised German shepherds when I was growing up. Oh, there they are. Yeah. One of the reasons that dogs are man's best friend and cats are not <laughs> is their eyes. Dogs are always looking at you, aren't they? They're looking for approval, looking to be noticed, looking to please, always looking. A cat's eyes say it all. I don't have the time of day for you, you stupid <laughs> human being. If you want to stroke me and cater to me, fine. You should, of course. 
But if you expect a longing look of adoration from me, talk to the paw. God made us with dog eyes, created to focus on our master. But did you notice what is the first thing that is affected after they eat the fruit? Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Was that a good thing that they were open? Yes or no? No, it was not. What do they suddenly see? They see themselves. And what do they notice when they see themselves? What do they notice? Their nakedness. And how do they feel about that? Shame. They were embarrassed. They didn't like what they saw. The more they turned on themselves, the more they turned inward, the less they liked what they saw. They were uncomfortable. Before they ate the fruit, we read that they were naked and unashamed. And now they are destructively self-aware and ashamed of what they see. We're talking about zombies, about those who are living and yet dead. Zombies hide from God. Spiritual zombies also live in shame. But wait a second, you might say. They sinned. They did wrong. Shouldn't they feel ashamed of themselves? They disobeyed God. There is an appropriate feeling. When we disobey God, there is a feeling that we should have. What is that feeling? Guilt. Say it. When you sense guilt about something, something that you have done, it is God nudging you to make things right. Guilt is the gift of the Holy Spirit that causes us to clean things up. John chapter 16, John, uh, Jesus is telling his disciples why he was sending the Holy Spirit. Here is what he says. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Guilt is God's gift to us to help us to know when we are living self-destructively. Guilt is like a spiritual pain reflex. If I pick up a hot pan, pain tells me to drop it because it is hurting me. And if I experience guilt, the Holy Spirit is telling me to drop that behavior because it is hurting me. But it wasn't just guilt that Adam and Eve experienced. What was it? Say it. Shame. Say shame. <coughs> now, what is the difference? Here it is, the difference. Guilt is the appropriate emotion over the bad thing that we do. Shame is the inappropriate, destructive emotion over the bad thing we think we are. Do you get the difference? Guilt is about what we do. Shame is who we are. And you can always tell the difference between guilt and shame by the direction we run. Guilt causes us to run toward God. To ask Jesus to forgive us. To make things right so that we can be settled in our relationship with Him again. Shame causes us to run away from God. To become focused on our failures and our self-loathing. Jesus never taught about shame. Did you know that? And He often taught about guilt. Shame or guilt. Should Adam and Eve have felt guilty about eating the fruit? Absolutely. But was their hiding from God the only option that they had? No. What could they have done differently? When God came calling, they could have run to Him. They could have said, God, we've blown it. We know You warned us, but we were weak. We were tempted. We ate what we weren't supposed to. Please forgive us. They could have done that. But shame drove them into hiding. Shame broke their relationship with God. And it brought internal brokenness as well. 
All Adam could think about in his shame was himself. I heard. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid. It is the cry of the shame-centered person who is growing to hate himself. The shame-centered person who disagrees with God's opinion that he has created beautifully in his own image and is precious and beloved of God. And what was the object of their shame in this story? What is the object of their shame? Their nakedness. God created them beautiful. He didn't create them shamefully. But now they find their, their appearance is shameful to them. And they cover themselves. I think this is one of the saddest remnants of the fall in the garden. Disgust and self-loathing with the bodies that God gave to us. It is true for all humans, but especially for women, and especially for young women. There is the battle with the lie of the enemy who says, you look shameful. You ought to cover yourself. You ought to change the way you look. It is the lie of every magazine cover on right next to the checkout stand in the grocery store. You do realize, don't you, no woman really looks like that. It is a Photoshop lie. These are computer creations. And this is what we are telling our daughters they must become. How is this any different from the shame they felt when they covered themselves with their fig leaves? Now, they cover themselves with makeup. They cover themselves with tattoos. They cover themselves with something because they are ashamed of the way they look. Take a look at this. campaign being put on by Dove. Another one of their similar videos in, in their campaign that says this. Talk to your daughter before the beauty industry does. One of the devil's most enduring and destructive lies is you are, you are ugly. You're not pretty enough. You're not acceptable the way you are. All of you, but especially you young women, you need to hear this. God created you. And he created you beautiful. And he created you in his image the way you are. And the sooner you believe God and disbelieve the devil's shame producing lies. The sooner you will take your eyes off of yourself and back on to the life giving master. Shame has the devastating effect of damaging our relationship with ourselves. We don't like what we see about us. But that's not the end of it. The shame stain seeps out into others. Jesus once said, remember these words, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, tell me something. 
when shame stains healthy self-love and turns it into self-loathing or self-absorption, it makes us impossible, makes it impossible for us to genuinely love others. Do you see that? If I'm loving others the way I love myself and I'm self-absorbed or I hate what I find in myself or both of those things, it makes it impossible for me then to love others right because I'm loving others as I love myself, Jesus said. That's what happens in our story. And what is the first relationship that, that sin seeks to kill in our story? The first relationship. Marriage. The central relationship of human society. Period. No matter what anyone says. Marriage. The central relationship of the human experience. This institution is under attack in our culture as never before. And regrettably, even within our own denomination. Adam and Eve were, first of all, ashamed of themselves. And then very quickly, they became ashamed of each other. They covered up so that they wouldn't see each other anymore. And may I say it, that is a shame. Because God created them beautiful for each other. Remember, the first time that God presented Eve to Adam, he wasn't ashamed. He thought she was magnificent. We have this wonderful gift of intimacy, of marital sex. It's one of God's great ideas. But they were also ashamed of each other now in every other way. Emotionally disconnected. Spiritually disconnected. Relationally disconnected. They're hiding from each other. When shame comes into a relationship, trust and transparency and innocent delight all run and hide. That's why it's so hard to rebuild marriages after an affair. It is why divorce is so toxic. It is why premarital sex, especially among, teen, among teens, is so destructive, often leading to eating disorders and depression and suicide. Because when we become that exposed and then someone violates our trust and brings shame into the relationship, it is an almost unbearable sense of vulnerability. Are you living in shame today? God says that you are precious to him. That He loves you. That you are beautiful in His eyes. Are you living in God's pleasure today? Or are you living in shame? One of the first examples that we see of death in the garden is, is the appearance of shame. It is a zombie consequence of this story. But there's another one that came a little later. Did you see it? It was blame. Say blame. You saw it because you were laughing at it. Adam's first instinct when he was caught in his sin was to be preoccupied with himself, to turn inward in a very destructive way. His next instinct was what? Blame, to deflect the responsibility, to deflect his shame by blaming someone else. Verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said... <laughs> The woman. Let's just stop right there. Who does Adam blame? He throws Eve under the bus. Doesn't he? It's her fault. She was tempted. She ate the fruit. Of course, this conveniently ignores a big problem here. Adam's wimpiness. Right? Adam was right there. He had the responsibility to save his wife from that assault. But he pulled back. He let the serpent attack her and he did nothing. Adam did 
What the majority of men today do in their marriages, he went spiritually passive. When what was required was courageous, sacrificial, spiritual leadership. I said it last week, I'm going to say it as long as I'm in ministry. One of the most toxic sins that Adam has passed on to us men is the sin of passivity. And it is so sad because we were called and created for leadership. But Adam wimps out and then he blames his wife. And it is no different from what happens in lots of bars after work where guys take turns complaining about their nagging, hard-to-please wives. Men, if you ever speak to another person about your wife in any way that does not build her up and honor her, you are becoming just like Adam. Bite your tongue. If you want a wife that treats you honorably, start by honoring her in every word you speak about her. But the blame done game is not quite done yet, is it? Who's the next one to receive blame? God! Yes, the woman you put here. You get that? The woman you put. It's your fault, God. Things were going along just fine until you decided to stick me with her. That wasn't quite his response in the last chapter, was it? Wow! Is what his response was. Then, he was lonely. It was not good. God creates this greatest of gift and gives it to him. But now, suddenly, it's your fault. The woman you created. But the blame virus is contagious. It goes on. Did you see it? Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now it's Eve's turn. It's contagious. It was the serpent. The serpent, you created God. The serpent deceived me. It is his fault that I disobeyed you. Everyone is pointing at someone else. Adam is pointing at the wife. Adam is pointing at God. Eve is pointing pointing at the serpent. Everyone is pointing everywhere, but where they need to point, which is where? Point where they need to point. Right here. Point, everybody. Right here. That's where they needed to point. Spiritual zombies cannot take responsibility for their actions. Zombies are always victims. Zombies are always looking for someone to blame. Someone to sue. Someone to deflect attention and responsibility away from themselves and elsewhere. Shame kills relationship. So does blame. So what is the prescription for blame? It is courageous responsibility. It is the willingness to stand up and say, I did it. Practice those words. Go. I. Good. Try this one. It was my fault. I am to blame. All the blame rests on me. Husbands and wives, you will never get back the intimate relationship that God intends for you to have. If the only hand motion you can come up with is this one. Of course, another one that you can do that's bad too. But this is the one I'm going to do up here. Of course there is blame to share. Of course she did something or he did something to hurt you. But if you dare to have the courage to say, I will focus on myself. I will take responsibility for what I have done. I will point to me. You might be amazed at how your marriage could be transformed. Own up to your own sin. Own up to your own fault. Model for your spouse how they might do the same. Anyhow, it's worth a try, isn't it? Because I guarantee you, the blame game never 
works. But this also, this attitude also works in our broken relationship with God. What is called for in our relationship with God is a good dose of Psalm 51. Do you remember what Psalm 51 is about? The story of Psalm 51? Remember, David fell in love with another man's wife. What was her name? Bathsheba. And he conspired to have this man who was a loyal leader in his military. He conspired to have him murdered so that he could cover his sin and take her for himself. It is awful. It is awful what David said. But listen to how his response differs from Adam's. It is Psalm 51. I'll read parts of it. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's how you deal with the blame game. Zombies, your friends who are living but dead, are dying to be loved. Dying to be loved by God, dying to be loved by themselves, by themselves, dying to be loved by others. And the way into real love and real life is to reverse the shame-blame cycle. Just like David did. First of all, you must reject shame. You must reject that feeling that causes you to hate yourself and to hide from God and others. That is shame. It is of the devil. Recognize it for what it is. Do spiritual warfare. Talk back to the devil. Tell him that you are a beloved creation of God's. That you are precious to him. That God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And that you will choose to believe God's opinion of you and not the devil's. Plead for the protection of the blood of Jesus over your emotions and over your spirit. That's how you battle shame. And then take responsibility for your actions. Admit your guilt before God. Don't blame your parents. Don't blame your boss. Don't blame your boyfriend. Don't blame your background. Declare to God, I know my transgressions and beg His forgiveness. And thank Him for sending His Son Jesus to do what you cannot do. Pay the price of your sin and deliver you from guilt and from shame. Paul told Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus told his disciples, I came to seek and to save the lost. The shame-blame cycle leads to death. It leads to zombie death. But it can be broken. And the call of the gospel today is to stop living like zombies and discover the joy of living life loved. Let us pray. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for how it speaks from thousands of years back to our present moment, to the struggles that we have with shame, our dissatisfaction with who we are, what we look like, what we have accomplished. We crawl into our own souls and all we can think about is me. Our eyes turn inward instead of towards the master. And it's just miserable because we don't like what we see living in, a, in the trap of shame. 
And then when we finally have, can't stand that anymore, we, we want to blame God. We want to point our fingers at you or others, anyone, so that we don't have to take responsibility for what we alone have done and for what you alone can fix. Set us free. Set us free from that bondage. Give us real life. For we ask it in Jesus' name.